All right, the scripture reading today comes from Genesis chapter 2. If you're just joining us, we're in the middle of an exegetical series through the, uh, through the book of Genesis. And this is what the scripture says. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, everyone, uh, what we just read uh, was the beginning of the Bible's vision for marriage. Now, obviously, this is a really big topic, important topic, so we want to understand this really well. And as usual, to do that, we need to pay close attention to what the text is actually saying and not what we think it should say or feels that it might say. I think in this case, the temptation is to read Adam and Eve like it's some sort of B version or low budget iconic romance story from the modern era. It's like what we just read was like once upon a time in a garden far, far away, like a man took a really deep sleep and then God removed part of his torso and created a woman and they lived happily ever after. That is a very like Western story arc and that is how our brains process stories. But Genesis 2 doesn't really fit into that arc. It's not a romance comedy, right? It's not, it's not made by DreamWorks or Disney. It's ancient, it's Hebrew, it's poetry, it's primeval history. And it's also inspired by God. So why does all of that matter? Well, it matters because it's doing something different from the romance stories of our culture. And it's trying to give us the original base institution on which all human life is built. And it's giving us a framework for how we were designed by God to flourish in relationship with each other. Or said another way, Genesis 2 is trying to answer the question, what is marriage according to the Bible? And possibly the bigger question, what is marriage for? So let me begin this conversation by just saying that I know that many of you are single. Maybe a portion of you love being single. But the reality is the majority are single not by choice. Either you haven't met the right person or dating is really hard for you. I, for one, was terrible at dating. I mean, really, really bad. God only knows how Grace wound up with me. However it happened, I'm just glad that she wasn't thinking straight when I asked her out because um, I was not uh, good at dating. Um, you're like, we can tell just by looking at you, bro. Like. <laughs> We had a gut feeling that you were maybe not like clutch at dating. Okay, that's enough. 
Being single can be hard. Others of you might be divorced or widowed. Whoever you are, we see you. God sees you, and you're not second rate. We are all equal in God's family. And you're loved in the exact same way that every married person is loved by God. And you're not in some holding pattern before your life has meaning. Case in point, Jesus, he was single, right? Jesus was single. I think it's fair to say he imaged God pretty well, right? And he was also loved by his community and he made a massive impact on the world, obviously. So when we talk about God's vision for marriage, this is still very much a message that applies to your life if you're single. It might help you clarify what you're looking for in a future spouse if that's where you're going. Or it'll redeem marriage for you as a sacred, God-given institution. And definitely what it will do for all of us is to help us see ourselves in a covenant relationship with God and the community of love that he created. So I'm going to do my very best today to just sort of highlight all of those things as we go along. Also, this message is very closely connected to last week's message on gender and sexuality, and I'm not going to open that can of worms again for today, mainly for my blood pressure and anxiety. I'm just like, I'm glad that's behind me, but you can listen back to that podcast if, if you missed last Sunday. So this is how the passage begins. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And the single guys in the room are like, yeah, we've been saying that for years, right? Uh, you're not crazy, God is with you on this one. It's not good for man to be alone. But what's happening here is more than just commentary on bachelor life. This is God pointing out a flaw or something that's incomplete in his good world that he created, that he designed, that he spoke into existence through his creative power. And you'll remember at the end of the day, uh, excuse me, at the end of every day so far in the story, it says, God said that it was good. So the sun and moon and stars, good. The water teeming with life, good. The land bringing forth vegetation and supporting life for animals, good. But now something is not good. And contrary to common thought, this is before there was ever any evil or rebellion or sin in God's good world. So what's going on here? Well, the wordplay is the author's way of saying that the garden is paradise, but it's incomplete. The garden is paradise, but it's incomplete. It's not whole yet. Something very crucial is missing. So what is the problem? The problem is that man is alone, and, and that's not good. The female isn't here yet, hasn't arrived yet. So here's what that means. By the way, these are things that you probably all intuitively feel deep within you on a body, mind, and soul level. But you may not know that these things are anchored in and connected to your origin story from the Bible. Number one, we are relational beings, right? Friendship and belonging in a community is, not, is, a, is a human need. It's not a want. It's a basic human need. If we're going to thrive, if we're going to flourish, we need relationships. It's also really important to point out that like the full-time moms or the full-time dads that Kate was referring to a minute ago, those of you in the room, you feel very differently from the single guys. When full-time moms hear that it's not good for man to be alone, they think to themselves, well, like, it'd be good to sometime be alone, like 10 minutes would be awesome, right? 
In our family, we call that being peopled out. Like we've had enough human contact for the day and we're just kind of ready for a bit of solitude or quiet. And maybe you can relate to this, I don't know, but um, during quarantine or during the COVID era, I was one of those introverted people that never got sick of it. And that sounds insane to the extroverts in the room. Don't get me wrong, my job was harder and, uh, than, it, than, it, than it normally is. And I really did miss like the gathered church and worshiping in community and all of that was really hard during quarantine. But other than that, I had plenty of time to like read and work out and pursue a bunch of passion projects that I don't normally have time, time for. And for me, that was just amazing. I loved it. But no matter who you are, even someone like me, who's maybe the most introverted person here in the room, whoever, right? We are all relational beings by God's design, by God's design. And it's baked into who he is too. God is also a relational being. The Trinity is a community within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so since his nature is relational and his primary disposition is love, then he needs community. God needs community in order to be fully himself. He cannot love in a vacuum and neither can we. So part of what it means for us to be made in God's image is to be a person in loving relationships with other people. So without relationships of love, the Imago Dei is incomplete. And that's what the Bible is saying. That's not good. This also leads us to a similar idea that we are designed to love and be loved. Right? This is how tremendously successful and accomplished people can get to the end of their life and regret their entire life arc because they overfunctioned in work or productivity in whatever area, but at the cost of their relationships. And so their spouses or their kids or whomever, they resent their demonstrated uh, selfish lifestyle in service to their ego. And they wish that they could do it all over again with completely different priorities, mainly loving the people that God had put in their life. So love is not an add-on to an already successful life. It's part and parcel to life itself. Much more as we go along here. But before I move on, I just want to make a quick comment on the mental health epidemic in the West. I always take opportunities to do this because I see it all the time. Today, in the 21st century, we have more and more connections with more people than ever before. For example, Getting together and having casual sex has never been easier. You can get it on an app on your phone like that, right? But we're still the loneliest generation on record. That's been proven through sociological research. To me, this is a dead giveaway for why our generation is so anxious and so depressed. Superficial social connections, they do not satisfy our deep human craving for love and community. So to be superficially connected to each other through apps and technology, but to remain chronically lonely on a deeper level is to be starved of part of what it means to be human. It's to starve part of your humanity. According to God in the garden, isolation is not good. It, it's dehumanizing. And I think this is why people um, or the feeling of being single can be so overpowering for some people especially if you're feeling disconnected from friends or the church family or whatever. Now, the answer isn't to like hurry up and to marry whoever's close by or something like that. And it's not to just get 100 new friends all of a sudden. But part of the answer is to make a commitment to be devoted to a small group of people who you can follow Jesus with. And that not, might not sound like a very novel idea to some of you or to most of you, but the good ideas rarely are novel. 
and especially in a world that's changed as rapidly as ours has changed in the last 20 years, returning to the simple, ancient, time-tested ways of living in community is probably what we most desperately need. At Riverbend, we've, in the last four months, we've launched three new Riverbend communities, and we're going to launch several more in 2023. It's part of our DNA is to launch people into uh, what we call Riverbend community. Uh, notice what God says next. I will make a helper suitable for him. So friendship and community is part of the answer to the incomplete human experience in the Garden of Delight. But it's more than just friendship isn't it? It's also partnership. The word here for helper is the Hebrew word ezer, and it means helpmate or partner or helper. And it's clear that these verse from the verses that follow that what God is referring to is the woman, the female. Now I'm going to caution you uh, with something very similar that I cautioned to you last week. Don't read in here the like antiquated gender stereotypes from American culture, like from the 1950s or whatever. The Bible is not responsible for the sexist characters in Mad Men or whatever, whatever. The Genesis account is not saying that the woman must always like fold the laundry and clean the dishes with a smile. Like that's not in here. That's not the biblical narrative. Those are misguided stereotypes from culture that have been projected onto the biblical narrative, not the biblical narrative itself. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Genesis, in a much more sexist time uh, than the 1950s, very provocatively says that both male and female are made in the image of God. More than that, the image of God in the Garden of Eden is unacceptably incomplete and not good without the presence of the woman. Right? Which also means that men and women are equal before God. That is no surprise to any real student of the Bible. For some reason, those stereotypes have been projected onto the Bible, but they're not actually there. However, men and women are not interchangeable. We're equal, not interchangeable. Very clearly here, there is gender distinction and gender difference between the male and the female that make the image of God complete. And that was incomplete before the arrival of the woman, but is now complete, meaning there is distinction and gender difference. So to flatten out that gender difference, like men and women are equal, therefore we are the same, is just a logical fallacy. And I believe that it's a tragic mistake that misunderstands God's heart and distorts the image of God in women and in men. So what does it really mean that the woman is the easer in, in Hebrew? Well, a good friend of mine, Diane, who's a part of the family here, is a brilliant student of the Bible, and she's also in seminary right now, and she shared with me a research project that she did on this word, Ezer, and it's great, and if you nicely ask her, she might share it with you too, but in it, she writes this, this combination of Hebrew words might be best understood to indicate that Eve was a powerful ally whose essence, though like Adam's, was dissimilar in ways that made the woman a fitting complement to the man. In other words, together they make a mighty whole. Ah, I think that is so well said. I love that. The easer, the helper, is a powerful ally. 
and her essence is different from a man in, in a way that complements him, and together they make a mightily, mighty whole. Now, that totally rings true uh, to my experience in, in marriage uh, to my wife, Grace, by the way. We are equal, absolutely 100% equal, and we are very, very different in personality and function within our marriage. For example, she's able to calm our kids down anytime there's cuts and scrapes. Like she is a magician at it. I don't know how she does it. Um, when there's a noise in the house at night, that's my, de- that's my department, right? I would be better at tackling an intruder in my, in my family. Although I've never had the chance to prove it, I, I still think that I would be. <laughs> Grace has a much better intuition when it comes to leading and caring for people than I do. Um, it's not even close. I, I'm better at dissecting complex situations and clearly pre- presenting truth. We, we, we are very different, but we are equal. So if my life partner was another man, then we might, and I mean might, be able to do some things quicker or better or easier, like climbing mountains faster or something like that. But the image of God in our family and the community that we built together would be tragically incomplete without the woman and her distinct calling as the female gender. So if you're married or you're about to be married or you want to be married, embrace your spouse's differences in gender and personality and function in your marriage as God's gift to you, not as an annoyance, which we often do. So what we need to do is decouple the sexist cultural stereotypes from the biblical paradigm for male and female. And when we do, the Spirit leads us to a very hopeful, exciting vision for marriage. Together we make a mighty whole. Are you guys with me so far? Awesome. Okay. Um, Next, notice Adam's response to the arrival of the woman. He says this, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Well, we don't really have time to explain all that's going on here, but in short, Adam is just getting pretty excited. He's just happy that he finally has Eve there with him. Finally, he has a suitable, compatible helper and partner for the journey of life. Now, he doesn't see her as this like separate individual that he's casually crossing paths with. He's saying she's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Right? This is an expression of relational intimacy, of sexual union, and of a sense of truly belonging together. He's saying, this woman is my like, compatible partner. This woman completes me. But he's talking about more than friendship and partnership, isn't he? He's also talking about being fully known and truly loved. Fully known and truly loved. Tim Keller, in his book on marriage, which is my favorite book on marriage, by the way, The Meaning of Marriage, he says this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. Come on. That's really good. So in other words, marriage is like this container where husband and wife learn everything about their partner, everything about one another, and still choose to love them. So it's the opposite of being alone. It's actually being home uh, with another person. 
But we shouldn't just see this as like romance either. That's not at all, or that's not the whole picture here. Remember, God puts human, humans in charge of ruling and, and reigning over the garden. They were called to serve and take care of Eden. Those are the biblical words themselves, serve and take care of Eden. So that in the end, everyone and everything would actually flourish. Now, throughout this series, we've explained that a central vision for humanity is to take the raw, untamed garden and to shape it to become a home where the community can thrive in relationship to God. So this is a big job that Adam has been given, and he cannot do it on his own. Fortunately, he doesn't have to. Eve is also called to rule and to reign. And Eve also is bringing different competencies to the partnership. So the picture of marriage is friendship, it's love, it's partnership and mission. And he's not, and we're not seeing ourselves as individuals working out our individual callings. We're part of the same team and we're working together on the project that God gave us. These are crucially important distinctions. It's also family. That's also baked into the equation here. God commanded us to be fruitful and multiply. That's Genesis chapter one. Listen, we're living in a weird time where there's eight billion people on the planet, right? If you had another kid, where would we put them? Seriously. Uh, but, uh, but th and there's social stigmas around this stuff. But raising kids is a part of the sacred calling uh, to rule and care for the garden. Not everyone will have kids, but it is a, um, a major part of the human vocation. And our, what we want to do is listen and obey all that God has commanded uh, of us. And I believe that having kids is a rich reward. For example, 3 John 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And I just have to say, testify that my wife, Grace, she is an incredible partner in the mission of making disciples of Jesus with me. And that starts with our kids, Isabel, who's 11, Judah, who's five, and then it moves outward to the rest of our church family and beyond that as well. We are making disciples. That is what our life is all about. We're not individuals set out on an individual calling. We have been called together to carry on the project that God gave us. So, so far, uh, we've touched on sort of the basics of the biblical paradigm for marriage. But there's another really critically important layer to the biblical vision that's here in the text that's just a few layers down. And I want to see if we can all spot it together. Look with me at the next verse. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. Notice the phrase, that is why. That is why. Anytime you see that phrase, that is why, in the scripture, it's an important clue that what you're looking at is a statement of purpose. It's a statement of meaning. Why did God create humanity for marriage? Well, if you keep looking, you keep digging, then that treasure of wisdom is close by, and we're about to find it. That's kind of the idea behind that phrase, that is why. Now, in our culture, uh, most people get married to be happy. That's kind of the cultural paradigm. We might not characterize it that way, and it might not be that simple, but it is a fact that we are living in a hyper-individualistic society, probably the most individualistic society of all time. And in that paradigm, the individualist society, the meaning of life is individual fulfillment. The individual's interests, desires, and rights, they have to come before that of the group's interests, desires, and rights. 
And I would argue that the easiest place to see where that value is expressed in our society is in the way that our culture tells love stories. The way our culture tells love stories, which would probably be better described as romance fantasy. Like here's how the modern love story goes, or at least one version of it. A modern love story begins with a a magnetic romantic attraction. It's passion, it's a feeling where the individual's desires are being gratified by the other person. And after a while, that romantic attraction is tested by some form of adversity, like the disapproval of the lover's family or brush with infidelity or competing life goals or something like that. The lovers in step three, eventually they pass the test and their feelings of romantic attraction return stronger than ever before. And then finally, the story resolves with this sense that the lovers are soulmates, right? Each person gets exactly what they're looking for from the partner, from their lover, and they have true fulfillment in life. They live happily ever after. This is the story arc or of, of the love story in our culture. Now, the problem with how Christians, many Christians anyways, view marriage is that our hearts have been calibrated by our culture to expect that kind of love story. We're trying to like recreate a PG-13 version of a romance fantasy, mixing in a few Bible verses or something. And instead, people wind up really disillusioned, really unhappy. And in many cases, in my experiences, people wind up blaming God for their crummy marriages. And the problem isn't with God or his design for marriage. The problem isn't even with your spouse. And by the way, he does want you to be blessed and happy. It's just not the reason. It's not the meaning for marriage. It's a byproduct of a healthy marriage. That's a big, important difference. So the problem is actually just with that vision for individual fulfillment. Um, There are many holes in in that vision, but I'll just give you a few. Uh, At first, it feels really heartwarming, right? That the basis for the relationship, marriage relationship, romantic relationship, is like feelings and passion, romantic attraction and stuff like that. But quickly, that passion turns into way too much pressure for the marriage to be the vehicle for my happiness. Does that make sense? It's way too much pressure for feelings to be the vehicle for your happiness. And in an an individual fulfillment marriage, you're never fully known, you're never truly loved because you're always in promotion and marketing. You always have to like get your partner to buy back in, to keep them happy with what you're selling. And they have to do the same. And it's just way too much pressure. Or said another way, the rival religion of consumerism has colonized the institution of marriage as well. We've commodified our relationships. Listen to Tim Keller again. He writes this. Today, we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. And when we cease to make a profit... That is when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we're getting back, then we cut our losses and we drop the relationship. This has also been called commodification, a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange relationships. This is is how we do friendship. This is how we do community. This is how we do marriage in Western culture. And it's way too much pressure. And there's no surprise why it never works. This is how we do our cell coverage. Like if AT&T isn't working out for me, I go see what Verizon can do for me, right? 
But that is not the way to a healthy marriage. When Genesis 2 says that this is why a man shall leave his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh, there's, it's talking about something very, very different. It's all what we call covenantal language. Leaving the headship of father and mother and joining in one flesh union with your wife, it signifies a covenant relationship, which is this. According to the biblical vision, the essence of marriage is a covenant, a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other, a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other, a long-term binding commitment made sacred through a vow. So at first, that might sound a bit less sexy, (laughs) than a passionate magnetic attraction where your desires are being gratified in the individual fulfillment paradigm. But in contrast to a consumer relationship, a covenant relationship is way more intimate and it's way more satisfying because you can bring your whole self into the marriage, who you are, what's right with you, what's wrong with you. And because you're bound together through a sacred vow, there is not a hope that your feelings will stay satisfying and viable. It's not just like, oh, I hope these feelings stick around for a lifetime. I hope they stay viable. I hope they still are satisfying in 10 years. That's not how a covenant marriage works. You're actually safe because there is a sacred vow that unites you together. You're fully known and in the best of cases, you're truly loved. Another idea from Keller's book, which you just need to buy the book, okay? It's just (laughs) basically the whole message here. You need to learn, uh, the idea of, of Keller's book is that you need to actually learn the discipline of making a promise and sticking with it in order to actually be a free person. If you don't know how to make a promise and stick with it, his argument is that you can't even be a free person. Now, he borrowed that from Kierkegaard and Lewis Smedes, who are a couple of philosophers. I'm just borrowing it from all of them and giving it to you. Um, if you don't know how to make a promise and keep it, then you're a slave to your impulses. You're a slave to your desires. You're a slave to your circumstances. This marriage isn't what I thought it was going to be. When we were dating, he was marketing and promoting himself way better than he is now. And now I know the real person, and I'm not a fan. They don't make me happy anymore. I don't have loving feelings towards her right now. Listen, if you follow Jesus, you are not a slave to your impulses, your desires, your circumstances. In a covenant relationship, you make a commitment to the good of the other that's made sacred through a vow. Here are the actual features then of a covenant relationship from the scriptures. It's, by the way, it is totally countercultural and upside down from the individual fulfillment marriage. But here's what it is. A covenant relationship, here are the features. It's a, uh, a promise of future love. A promise of future love. Maybe the, one, maybe the most quoted scripture at wedding ceremonies, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, is kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. That is the biblical paradigm for covenant relationship, a promise of future love. So in this paradigm, love is an action way more than it is 
of feeling. Last Keller quote. All right, last Keller quote. In any relationship, there will be frightening spells in which your feelings of love dry up. And when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant, a commitment, a promise of future love. So what do you do? You do the acts of love despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender, sympathetic, and eager to please, but in your actions, you must be tender understanding, forgiving, and helpful. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they will also become less frequent and deep, and you will not become more constant, and and you will become more constant in your feelings. This is what can happen if you decide to love. And I think this is such an important point. Just get the book, all right? Like, I'm not getting the kickback, although by now you'd think I would. Um, The book is really good. Your vow is a promise to keep on loving when the feelings are not there. And that's precisely why a marriage is safe and precisely why it's true love. Another feature of covenant relationship is a promise of fidelity. Promise of fidelity. In a covenant relationship, you have single-hearted devotion. You make the commitment that no one is going to come along with better marketing and lure me into romantic love with them. You are my partner, my sexual partner, and my partner for life. Again, we're living in a hyper-sexualized culture, right? Reserving sex for marriage sounds crazy to people outside the the church, and I totally understand that. It sounds crazy to people even inside of the church, but the message of the scriptures is that sex is powerful, and the bond of marriage is is the only real relationship that's strong enough to contain the power of sex. And so that's why God requires it. So God commands you not to have sex before your marriage or outside of marriage. He's not trying to restrict your freedoms or make life less fun for you. He's actually just trying to protect you from one flesh bonds with people that haven't devoted themselves to you, haven't promised themselves to you. It's damaging, it's hurtful to form those bonds without commitment, without devotion. And I believe those of you who are single and dating, I believe that dating is a training ground for fidelity in marriage. Dating is a training ground for fidelity in marriage. People often say to me, well, you know, we're about to get married or we're going to get married eventually or something. The temptation is just getting super strong. What's the big deal if we sleep together now? Well, God only gives himself an intimacy with a covenant. God always does intimacy inside of covenant. That's how he does it. So to prove to your future spouse that you're not a slave to your desires, you follow in God's example and you practice fidelity in the interim time before you're married. That, to me, is a personal conviction uh, that I think is deeply embedded in Scripture. God does intimacy inside of covenant, so do we. If you're dating, if you're, um, you know, single, this is an opportunity for you to practice and train for that fidelity now. Um, Number three, a covenant relationship is a promise to endure hardship together. Endure hardship together. In a covenant relationship, the marriage becomes a vehicle for your character development. It's not a vehicle for your happiness. It's a vehicle for your character development. And when your character is developed, it turns out that you actually become very, very happy in life. So you're saying to your spouse, here's who I am. Here's what's right with me. Here's what's wrong with me. I can see what's wrong with you. 
and let's do this together. Let's work through it together. I remember uh, uh, about, oh my gosh, it's a long time ago now, almost 15 years ago, I was a groomsman at a wedding, and uh, Pastor Stan, legendary pastor from the Salem area, he's an incredible dude, he was leading uh, the, the, the ceremony and the vows, and one of the vows that he had my buddy and his wife repeat was, I receive every part of you as God's way of perfecting virtue in me. I receive every part of you as God's way of perfecting virtue in me. Marriage is a vehicle for character development, so how we endure hardship together is one of the most important features of that covenant relationship. And by the way, this has been the single most impressive thing and attractive thing to me about my wife, the way that my wife endures hardship and the way that she has committed herself to grow into maturity in Christ within our marriage. I am so impressed with my wife. 15 years in, I am so impressed, blown away at who she is becoming. And I feel spoiled, blessed, honored that I get to be the one who's united, partnered together with her. And I get to watch the later chapters of our life unfold and see her become the exact person that God created her to be in all of her beauty and all of her strengths and all of the things that God is working through her. And it's the hardship, it's the suffering, it's the challenge, it's the weakness of our life that actually makes us into those people. And when you make a commitment a covenant marriage, what you're doing is you're promising to endure hardship together. You're also promising uh, one flesh union. You're promising a one flesh union. Of course, this has to do with uh, sexuality, like we've said, but it also has to do with more than that. It has to do, again, with your fidelity and your decision to stay in the marriage. Um, Later in the biblical story, Jesus is being confronted by some of the religious elites and they come to him and test him. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus uh, says to the scholars of his day, have you ever read your Bible? Which is so Jesus. He's very punk rock and disruptive and in culture. He says, haven't you read it? That at the, beginning of, uh, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. Again, he's going back to Genesis. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, this is the point. What God has joined together, let no one separate. So the vision that God has given for marriage is a... Uh, a, a until death parts us kind of covenant relationship. And for all kinds of reasons, people's marriages have ended before death. And it's a tragic thing when it happens. And I've seen it happen where it's, you can see this one flesh is being ripped and torn apart and being made to again. And there's no way that it happens. It's never an easy way out. It's always hard and tragic to see. And I don't say that to spark fear or shame or guilt in any of you who've gone through a rough breakup or divorce or something like that. That's not the point. The point is that when we make a vow, we promise future love that we intend to keep that promise. And this is the final feature that we're going to have time to talk about today. And that feature is a promise that's based on Jesus' self giving love. 
This is what Ephesians calls the profound mystery, that our marriage is more than just about two people coming together and starting a family together, but it's actually a picture of Jesus' love for the church. And it's actually a representative of his love for the church. In fact, later in the biblical story, Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 21, the very closing scene of the Bible describes uh, the, the return of Jesus and it describes like a wedding ceremony where the people of God are the bride of Christ and are being fully united with God. And so the purpose or the, the meaning of marriage, if you will, is to reflect the Jesus self-sacrificing, self-giving love to the world. And that is what the, that's what the purpose is or that's what we're doing when we, get, when we give our lives to one another in marriage. We actually make a decision to uphold what Jesus has given to us in relationship with him. So the hope is that Jesus has shown us what real love is. We know what real, is, real love is because of what he's done. He's promised to empower us by his spirit. He's promised to, for those of you who are men who are about to be married or who are married, he's saying, I'm going to empower you by my spirit. You stay connected to me. You stay connected to my presence. You experience my love. You experience my forgiveness. You experience my grace in relationship with me. And then you transfer that same love. You embody that same love. You, you share that love that I've given you with your spouse. And this is a beautiful depiction of what real love and real uh, real. Uh, covenant relationship, what real covenant marriage can actually be. And then as we close, just one final thought, which is this, that the very final line of the scripture in Revelation chapter 22 is a prayer. It's a prayer that says, the spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit of the bride say, Come. In other words, what the, what, the, what the final prayer of the Bible is, is just this longing, this craving, this desire for that time when Jesus returns and he unites us as a groom unites with his bride. And this is our ultimate longing. This is what we hope in. This is what we trust in when we, when we follow after Jesus. And so as we respond, we're going to sing all hail, all hail King Jesus. We're going to sing praise to him. But we're also anchoring ourselves in that hope of his eventual return. That is where we are going. So will you please stand with me and let's pray. It's, uh, it's understandable that some of you might have heard some of what I just said, particularly around sexual relationships, particularly about like... Um, like divorce or remarriage or something like that, and that that's your situation. And so you might actually feel um, a, a mixture of things as we go to the Lord in prayer here. But keep in mind, the, the, the message is never that God condemns you or he shames you. That's not who our God is. He's actually a God of grace and compassion. And he has a vision, he has an ethic for your life that involves faithfulness and fidelity and making promises and keeping them and not obeying your desires and all of those things, yes. But he always is ready to lavish grace upon grace. He's always ready to share love. 
And so as we close, I just want to encourage you to open your hands with me. Enter into this exercise as comfortable as and as much as you are comfortable with right now. And God, we just find ourselves as your people in need of grace, in need of that covenant love that you loved us with. And so I just wanna pray for each and every one of you, particularly those who maybe have not experienced the love of God before. Maybe have not experienced that covenant love, that, that choosing, that decision to act and to will the good of the other. just pray that right now you would begin to experience God's love for you because you've heard me talk about it if you heard some familiar scripture and some kind of common ideas that you're probably used to hearing that there would be something divine inspired Holy Spirit driven actually just experience the love of God right now. For some, it might be helpful to just take in a nice deep breath and exhale. This is the way that we ground ourselves in the present moment, supposed to be fleeting forward or backward towards regrets or worries for our future. Instead, we just get to rest. Holy Spirit, come. As we were praying before the gathering, we had several people who had these visuals, these visions, if you will, of the Spirit of God moving through us like a mighty rushing wind. gathering where we're like whipping people up into an emotional experience. But we're just leaning on the promise, the covenant that God made with us. He said that if you draw near to him, he draws near to you. So I just want to encourage you to draw near to him today saying, yeah, I want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I want to experience the love of Jesus that I have not felt or have not felt in a while. I encourage you to just draw near to him. Isaiah 55 says, seek him while he may be found. together as his people, expressing our affection 
expressing our devotion, expressing our love to Him, and waiting on His answering love. And in the interest of today's talk about making promises, making vows, covenanting in relationship. I want to encourage those of you who have not given your life or devoted your life to Jesus to just give that, give yourself that, that option right now, that invitation right now. That your life can belong to Jesus. You can be betrothed. You can be engaged. You can looking forward to this day with us where we are united with the groom. And if you're there and you just want to say yes to that, I encourage you to just raise your hands in response. See the activity, see the movement of the Holy Spirit all around you. Say yes to His Say yes to the covenant love. God, you have shown us what real love is on the cross. And church, this is what we're, we do. This is what we do right now. We, we come forward, we, we grab the bread and the cup, we go back to our seats, we take it together as one church here in a moment as a way identifying ourselves with the sufferings of Jesus. And we also do it to express our affection, to express our love to Him. I know through the prayer room, some of you have like literally come awake. You're like, I don't know what I was before. I was asleep. I was half asleep. Half dead, maybe, but I'm awake now. People who are awake in, in Christ, people who are alive in Christ, they have affection for Jesus. They desire to lavish Him in the love that He lavished us with. It's reciprocal. He loves us, and because He loved us, we love Him back. Song, worship, music is all over the scriptures as one of the primary, if not the primary way that we express our affection to God. You can do all kinds of things in worship to God, but expressing your affection in song is one of the best ways that I know how to show God and tell God that he's worthy and that I love him and that I honor him and that I glorify him. So if you're awake, if you're alive in Christ, I encourage you, let's not let these moments slip by, but let's give him our praise. Let's give him our affection. Let's give him our worship.
He's lavished his love on you through the cross. Lavish love back on him. You're letting your heart flow out of your mouth and lift up your voice to King Jesus. So during this next song, let's come forward to receive the bread and cup and let's sing aloud our praise to him.